When the end, when the end, W what is up everyone welcome friends fellow wisdom seekers fellow truth seekers haters skeptics everyone is welcome at the brave new world order podcast thank you all so much for joining me today as we dive deep Today, we're going to go into the Colbrin Bible. What is the Colbrin Bible, you ask? Well, it is a very mysterious collection of 11 books, 6 Egyptian, 5 Celtic, and possibly 3,600 years old. This is all purely speculation, of course, but this is a very interesting, very mysterious document. So we're going to dive into it and read a little bit of it, not the whole thing because it's pretty lengthy. But we're going to dive in, just get a general idea of what it is and some of the information that is in it. So this is going to be a fun one. We're going to tie it into cataclysms and other stuff that I talk about as well. So let's dive into that in a few seconds. But before I do, please take a second to subscribe, follow, like, leave a review if you're enjoying the Brave New World Order podcast. Help out the show and the algorithm. Thank you all so much for doing so. I really appreciate all you reaching out, sharing this leaving reviews. Also, if you're on Spotify, there is a Q&A that will be posted with this episode in the show notes. So take a second to answer that if you want to. If not, it's all good. I just thank you all for being here on this journey with me because that's what it's about. It's about the journey. It's about the wisdom. And if you really want to help out the show, you like what I'm doing here, you want to support it, there are a couple of links in the show notes for you to help out. And I thank you all from the bottom of my heart for being a part of the Brave New World Order. And one more thing before we dive into the Colbrin Bible. If you want to reach out, you can. You can email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. And follow me on Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. Reach out, DM. Say what's up. I'd love to hear from you. All right, let's move on from that shameless self-promotion BS and dive into the goods. That's what it's about. Let's get into the Colbrin Bible, which, like I said in the intro, is an ancient collection of 11 books, 6 Egyptian, 5 Celtic, that was first published in New Zealand in 1994 by a group called the Hope Trust, which isn't around anymore, and the Chaldean Trust, which is a metaphysical organization that is based on the Chaldees, which were the Celtic followers of Christ that brought Christianity to Southwest Britain by Joseph of Arimathea in the first century AD. No one really knows when this thing was originally written. It seems like it was written over a span of a long time, but nobody knows when it originally began. And there's speculation about it being housed at the Library of Alexandria at one point. And then when that burnt down, somebody who recognized its importance made sure that it wasn't destroyed. There were probably copies made of it but the one that's mostly referenced when I was looking around about this was one that was salvaged from Glastonbury Abbey. There was a fire there in 1184. And once again, somebody who recognized its importance and possibly like a group of people who were custodians of this knowledge made sure it didn't get destroyed, although it suffered some damage in the fire. Once again, this is a very mysterious set of documents and manuscripts that nobody really knows where it came from. A lot of people speculate that it was written 
after Exodus in the OG Bible. And some people say that it was around the time of the 15th century BC, most definitely pre-flood. And what's really interesting to me and why I think this is something to talk about, because it talks about cataclysms and not just one cataclysm. It talks about an object in the sky referred to as the destroyer that appears many times and is going to come back. And it warns us of the destroyer. And it talks about human creation before the arrival of Adam and Eve. And this ties into one of my previous episodes, if you haven't listened to it, the Chan Thomas book, the Adam and Eve story. Check that out. That Adam and Eve weren't the first people or humans creations here on this earth. And cataclysms have come and gone and wiped out all record of what actually happened here. Definitely go back and check out the Chan Thomas, the Adam and Eve story, the history of cataclysms episode that I did a few months back ties into all of this. And if you're new here to the Brave New World Order podcast, you can kind of see where my head's at. That being said, let's keep going into the Colbrin Bible here. And I found this awesome article called The Guide to the Colbrin by Yvonne Whiteman. And it was published on October 17th of 2015. I'm going to post the link. It is actually from GrahamHancock.com. It's the best way to dive into the Colbrin Bible and absorb what is actually going on. Because it's there's so much information that I definitely recommend reading it for yourselves, obviously. But this article here is a good way to dive into this and absorb a lot of the information that it's in it. Because it's pretty long. And there's a lot going on in it. So I'm going to read this article here, some of it, and break down what's really going on in the Colbrin Bible. And real quick before we get into the article, I just want to read to you the names of the different books that are in the manuscripts. So that when you hear them, you don't feel lost. You feel like you've heard them before. So here we go. The first book is the Book of Creation. Then the Book of Gleanings. The Book of Scrolls. The Book of Sons of Fire, The Book of Manuscripts, The Book of Morals and Precepts, The Book of Origins, The Book of the Silver Bow, The Book of Lucius, The Book of Wisdom, and the last book is called The Britain Book. So now that you got the different books of the Colburn Bible, let's dive into this article by Yvonne Whiteman, and I'm going to read... Not the whole thing, but I'm going to skip down to the middle here and read the underlying story of the Colbrin. Beneath its overriding metaphysical texts, the Colbrin carries an underlying story, and it's a fascinating one, with its themes of genetics, global catastrophes, and the search for immortality. Below is a rough outline story I have patched together from the various books. Every scrap of information you read has been gleaned from the Egyptian and Celtic books with brief links in red to a few of the more important discoveries and identifications made since the publication of the Colbrin in 1994. Another book, which came from the same source as the Colbrin, entitled The Calidy, Book of the Illuminators, Having the Authority of the Nazarenes, was published separately in the 1990s and is an unusual gospel of the life of Jesus written by John of Luna. Now to the story that gradually emerges in the Colbrin. Incidentally, no chronological dates are given in the Egyptian books. 
the story in the Egyptian books. At the very beginning of human life, different species of men exist in the world. The Book of Origins states that there were two species, the children of God. They struggled harder, were more disciplined because of their forefathers had crossed the dark void from another unearthly place far distant. And they do not inherit death. A primitive indigenous species called the children of Earth, known as Yoslings, half-folk, not true men, sons of Bothus, and kinsfolk to the beasts of the forests. They are also called men of Zumat, meaning they who inherit death. And they descended from a highly developed ape, question mark, she puts. The Book of Gleanings, set later in time, lists even more species. The Grand Company, who subsequently withdrawn in disgust at the behavior of mankind. The Children of God, led by a wise father who knew truth and lived in the midst of peace and plenty. The children of men, a primitive indigenous species who were wild and savage, clothed in the skins of beasts. And then the men of Zumat, also known as the Yoslings, who were even wilder. According to the Cobrin, the different species should always have stayed separate. And then in red, she puts notes, Traces of this mating taboo may still exist in India. Priya Morjani, a geneticist at Harvard University, has done DNA research to show that all people in India trace their heritage to two genetic groups, a South Indian group closely related to Adaman Islands people and ancestral North Indian group originally from the Near East and Caucasus region. The Near East Caucasus area is traditionally associated with the ancient garden land mentioned in the Colbrin. Could this ancestral group have taken the mating taboo with them when they resettled, among other places, northern India? Is India's ancient Varna caste system with its, excuse my pronunciation of this, the Lidi, or what they call the untouchables, a system with unknown roots over 3,000 years, a trace of the genetic taboo mentioned in the Colbrins? And then there's a link to a study, genetic study, about where the caste system in India came from. Let's keep reading here. But when, eventually, mating start to occur, this is described as the first defilement. Both the children of God and the Yoslings fall ill, and a spirit being tells the children of God, the greatest of evils has befallen the race of the children of God. The fetid flow defiling the woman results from the incompatible intermingling. But it is not all, for sickness and diseases are also generating from the ferments of the impure implantation, because you too are now as one the canker worms of disease and sickness strike both equally. The children of God are then banished from the garden land, and it becomes a desert. The first Yosling man to mate with a woman of the children of God dies of his illness, but his lover gives birth to a daughter. This hybrid offspring is described as a cuckoo child. She is an unusual female with long red hair, never seen before, and she lives by herself in the forest as a sorceress, preferring the company of Yoslings. Eventually, she marries a great hero of the children of God in the land of Kraukasis, the Caucasus. Versions of her story appear in both the Egyptian and the Celtic books. 
The second defilement happens later when woman is tempted by the strength and wildness of the beast which dwelt in the forest. We are told that because of the wickedness that was done, there are among men those who are children of the beast, and they are different people. And then she puts a note in red hair, compare with the Aramaic version of the Book of Giants found in the Qumran. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field from every animal, from every bird, for miscegenation, inbreeding of people considered to be of different races. And they defiled, they begot giants and monsters. And that's a very interesting comparison. And also, if you ever read the book of Enoch and the Watchers and what happened when they came down and mated with the woman of this earth and created a different race of monsters, giants, or whatever, definitely check out the book of Enoch. I hope to dive into that on this podcast at some time as well. Let's keep going here, this article. And it says the Colbrin makes clear that it is woman and woman alone who is responsible for the two genetic defilements of the race of the children of God. For it is she who weakens and mates, first with a yosling, then with the beasts of the forest. By defiling her race, she does herself a great disfavor. For the children of God regard woman as the equal of man, whereas the children of men use her as a sex slave and a chattel, which over time becomes the norm throughout the human race. Over thousands of generations and endless intermingling, distinctions between the species gradually disappear and the resulting mixture becomes the shorter-lived, disease-prone human beings we are now. And then another note in red, the Colburn gives an interesting explanation of the lengthy lifespans recorded in the Old Testament in the Sumerian Kings list. Let's keep reading here. The earth is destroyed by fire. Man survives, but he is not the same. The sun is not as it was before, and a moon disappears. A subsequent destruction splits apart the eastern and western mountains so that they stand up in the sea and tilts the northern landmass over on its side, the lands of the little people. She puts a note in red, Homo floresiensis, discovered in 2003 on the Indonesian island of Flores, and then the giants, Another note in red, giant human skeletons were found in ancient Greece. See Adrian Mayers, the first fossil hunters, dinosaurs, mammoths, and myth in Greek and Roman times. Giant bones have been discovered all over the world, especially in North America. Most recently, skeletons of a nine-foot man are being found near Borjomi in Georgia, Caucasus, and near Caligari in Sardinia. The necklace ones in the land of marshes and mists are all destroyed. In the intensely cold age that follows, human beings survive by hiding in caves. They are terrorized by giant beasts until following heavenly rebellion and turmoil, a cataclysm hardens the face of the earth and turns the beasts to stone. Subsequently, the earth is destroyed by the flood of Atuma, then by the deluge. Notes in red. The Colbrin's pre-deluge account contains details linking it to the story of the Watchers in the Book of Enoch. That's what I just said. The names Sasuda and Sharapek in the deluge story lead me to think that the Colbrin's version of the flood story is the earliest Sumerian version. Incidentally, the Colbrin states that the great ship comes to rest upon Cardo, Sumerian name for the land of the Kurds. 
in the mountains of Ashtar against Nisham in the land of God. The Deluge story is followed by a lengthy version of the Gilgamesh story with a hero called Hermanatar. When Osira slash Yosira, the Great One, comes from the west with the people of light seeking refuge in Egypt after the destruction of his own land, Ramakui of the Seven Cities, Land of Copper, he finds a population living in holes in the ground. Following the cataclysm, a plague has wiped out all the adult population and with it all knowledge of basic living skills. The remaining population includes men who are blood kindred with the beasts of the forest or with fowl or with serpent who dwelt together according to their kinship and were divided thereby. Osira teaches the lost generation how to grow corn, to spin, and to carve stone, as well as writing and numbers. But when he tries to teach the people about God, they do not understand him. So he invents signs and simple tales, the first ever myths, to help them understand. He tells them that when he dies, the son will become their adoptive parent in his place. He is much beloved by the common people. Osira has brought with him from Ramakui amazing technology, the sacred eye and the firestone which gathers the light of the sun, forms of knowledge lost to us now, just as we have lost the rituals of seashells and the song of the stars. Above all, he brings with him out of his people's transparent temples the light that shines when darkness falls without being lit. Osira is not like other men. Wearing robes of black linen and a red headdress, he has the likeness of a god, and his bones are not as those of others. When eventually he dies in the manner of men, he leaves behind him a flourishing civilization. Later, wise men come to Egypt from Zador, another land recently destroyed. They are great astronomers. They reject the idea of the sun as a god, and they have a unique mummification practice of covering the bodies of their dead with potter's clay and leaving it to harden. And then she put some red notes here. In his 2013 book, The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons and the Great Smithsonian Cover-Up, Alan J. Dewhurst reproduces among his hundreds of newspaper clippings, one from the Syracuse Daily Standard dated July 23, 1897, which reports not only the finding of an old copper spear, with an incredibly fine 10-inch point, but also a 9-foot skeleton embalmed in some kind of dried cement. The journalist added, Archaeologists believe that at some prehistoric time, the country surrounding Mora was densely inhabited by a race of people who were much further advanced in civilization than the Indians. On April 19, 1915, H.E. Davis of the El Paso Herald reported, that an ancient eight-foot skeleton discovered near Silver City was encased in baked mud, indicating that encasing the corpse in mud and baking it was the mode of embalming. Back to the main article that's written in white. Under the twin influences of Osira and the wise men of Zaidor, Egypt becomes a land of two peoples, two streams of wisdom, and two hierarchies of gods. A few Egyptians learn how to move outside their everyday consciousness to glimpse what happens beyond death and how, by long spiritual preparation and enduring, the awfulness of the false death, the strongest among them, can become fearless twice-borns. 
It is the wise man of Zaidor who built the great guardian Rakima, the Sphinx with a question mark she puts in red, and the great house of the hidden places, which once contained the womb of rebirth used by the twice born. And that reminds me of Hermes Trismegistus, which I did an episode on that. Go back and listen to it. He is referred to as Hermes, the thrice greatest. So twice born, thrice born. And also the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean that I've been putting out. Check those out too. I think this might all be tied together. So if you haven't checked out my Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean, as well as the episode that I did on Hermes Trismegistus, Go ahead and check those out. And let's keep going here with the article. They also build the Temple of the Radiant Ones at Giza. She puts in red the Valley Temple, question mark. And they write on a great stone above the entrance, from the children of God to the children of men. Behold, we found you in bondage to mortal bodies and bestowed upon you the gift of everlasting life. In red, she goes on to say the description of the Temple of the Radiant Ones, many pillared and walled about, fits what we now call the Valley Temple. Robert Temple says in his book, Egyptian Dawn, once you go through one of the doors of the Valley Temple, you are in one of the granite entrance halls, which are very high. A niche made of granite very far above head height looks down on you. No one knows whether it contained a statue or what its purpose was. Let's keep going here in the white. Over the subsequent centuries, Egyptian scribes wonder where their motherland could have been. They consider all the geographical options where strange races live, and speculate whether the motherland might have been Ramakui, Zidor, or some earlier civilization. The Book of Origins states unequivocally that their cradled land was Crocasus, and then she puts in a note here that Crocasus is the Caucasus that we mentioned a bunch of times before. And she goes on with a note saying that Pliny the Elder in his Naturalis Historia derives the name Caucasus from the Scythian Croicasus, meaning ice shining, white with snow. In August 2011, scientists at the Zurich DNA Genealogy, Genealogy Center, I-G-E-N-E-A, reconstructed the DNA profile of the pharaoh Tutankhamun. Results show that he belonged to a genetic profile group known as haplogroup R1B1A2, to which 70% of British, 70% of Spanish, and 60% of French men also belong. Roman Schultz, director of the IGENEA Center, said, We think the common ancestor lived in the Caucasus about 9,500 years ago. And now we go back to the regular story in white here. Egypt prospers. Its rulers put spirituality and duty to their subjects above all else. Their sacred knowledge is carefully written down and preserved alongside the earliest records brought to Egypt by Osira and the wise men of Zador. These sacred texts are stored in four secret geographical locations, but the land also suffers wars, calamities, and cataclysms. One 18th dynasty scribe looks back at his civilization and writes, My land is old. A hundred and twenty generations have passed through it since Osira brought light to men. Four times the stars have moved to new positions, and twice the sun has changed the direction of his journey. Twice. The destroyer has struck earth 
and three times the heavens have opened and shut. Twice the land has been swept clean by water. Throughout the Egyptian books, nearly 30 references are made to the destroyer. In red here, she notes, the destroyer is also mentioned in Exodus 12, 23, Jeremiah 48, 8, and Job 15, 21. An overwhelming destructive heavenly phenomenon that appears regularly every few thousand years and is so terrible as to be beyond man's understanding. Its appearance and behavior are described in detail, particularly during an account of the Israelite slave exodus from Egypt. Notes in red, this is described from an Israelite viewpoint in the book of Exodus. See Manuscript 6, chapter 12, verse 23 of the book of Exodus actually refers to God and the destroyer as separate entities. The El Arish steel marks the place of the whirlpool where the Egyptian chariots fought their last stand against the Israelites before being overcome by rocks and water. Details in the Colbrin also tally with an ancient Egyptian text, the Lament of Ipuwer. According to the Roman scholar Servius, information about the destroyer and its link with the Exodus could be found in the works of an Egyptian astrologer called Petosiris. So this could well have been one of the Colbrin's sources. The Latin author Pomponius Mela refers explicitly to Egyptian written sources for astronomical details, which also appear almost word for word in the Colbrin. Back to the article written in white. Over and over, the Egyptian books prophesied the return of the destroyer and their precise descriptions of the state of the world at the time of its return are not just a shrill millennial warning, but could well refer to our own time. Somehow, Egypt survives these cataclysms, but as the centuries roll on, the country begins to weaken. The Egyptian religion has always been split in two. Into, on the one hand, the open religion of the common people, and on the other, the secretive mysteries practiced by priests within the inner temples. Gradually, Egypt becomes idealistically and spiritually lazy. At one point, a man called Sethra conceives a plan to allow everyone to participate in the sacred mysteries, hitherto reserved exclusively for the worthy ones among men. He gathers together a following of his own and promises them knowledge of all things sacred. What follows is strife most grievous that is in some way connected to the house of the hidden places. A scroll described in the Colbrin as extremely ancient says that the twin powers drawn down entwined about themselves and grew ever stronger. Even as waters are damned to be drawn upon, so was the united power built up into a reserve of force. A storehouse of strange energy was prepared. She put some notes in red here. Christopher Dunn suggests in his book, The Giza Power Plant, that the ancient Egyptians might well have developed their own power system. And then back to the article in white here. The same scribe aims some strong criticism at the establishment of the land. O Egypt, you have turned to gods that are not, but the spirits of men return to dwell in wood and stone. Their ears of rulers are closed to the words of wisdom. The doors of their hearts are bolted against truth. 
Egyptians still remember from their past that Osira and the priests from Zador had astonishing powers and could even bring a form of life back into a dead body so that the soul might commune with the living. But their memories are vague, and since their priests no longer know how to perform such supernatural feats, they reason that preserving a dead body from decay might mean one day it could be restored to life. So they develop the art of mummification and charge for it. A scribe writes, Priests grow fat on riches bestowed for the preservation of the body, while those who speak of the preservation of the soul are tormented. Religious practice lapses into empty ritual. An attempt by Pharaoh Nabahatan, a.k.a. Akhenaten, to introduce a new sun religion comes to nothing, partly because of his own spiritual inadequacy, partly because of his epileptic fits, and partly because of his licentious behavior, culminating in an incestuous relationship with his daughter, which appalls everyone who hears of it. She put some notes in red here. On October 26, 2014, BBC One's program, Two in Common, The Truth Uncovered, made several surprising claims. Recent CT scans and DNA tests have proved conclusively that Amenhotep III and his son Akhenaten were congenital epileptics and that Tutankhamun's many medical conditions, necrosis of the bones, club foot, malformed body, for example, were the result of an incestuous relationship between Akhenaten and his sister. Colbrin readers already knew about the epilepsy. In the Book of Manuscripts, Akhenaten fits are described in detail, but the Colbrin states that Akhenaten's incestuous relationship was not with his sister. It was with his daughter, Maretetin. It also says that two sons were born of his incestuous relationship. If the mummy of Maretetin were to be DNA tested, we think it might show she was the mother of Tutankhamun and maybe of Smenkakar too. And once again, I apologize for my horrible pronunciation of these Egyptian names. And if I flub up along the way reading this stuff to you, but I am trying my best. That being said, let's keep reading. The article continues in the white, black, not white. I don't know why I keep saying that. Anyway, it continues on. However, some still follow the old spirituality and preserve the ancient written knowledge passed down from Osira and the wise men of Zidor. A few Egyptians still go through the long preparation and immense ordeal of becoming twice born, but the old ways are increasingly frowned on by the majority. The people who practice them are ostracized. Two of the individuals mentioned by name are Pasanusu and Panubis. Other 18th dynasty Egyptians whose work appear in the Colbrin include Hapu and Senmut, and a female poet called Nefertari. So, Pasanusu, two funeral cones for an Egyptian called Pasanusu can be seen in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and as far as Panubis, the sarcophagus of a Panubis is in the Natural History Museum of Santiago, Chile. And then... Hapu was the high priest of Amun during the reign of this person whose name is hard to say, Hatshepsut. And then Senmut was the architect and government official whose masterpiece was the mortuary temple complex for 
that Hatshepsut. And Nefertari might have been Ramesses II's daughter. So those are notes that she put in that paragraph. And let's keep on reading here. Eventually, these people's lives and the records they treasure are thought to be in grave danger, knowing from past prophecy that their spiritual path lies in another land away to the north. The guardians of the sacred writings make a crucial decision. They leave Egypt, smuggling out a complete set of their writings and go into exile. And then she has some notes here that say, in May 2014, the skeleton of this person whose name is hard to pronounce, Kenamun, royal steward and foster brother to Pharaoh Atomosis II, was discovered. He is mentioned in the Colbrin as one of those who leave Egypt. From archaeology, we know that Atomosis II had prepared a splendid tomb for Kenamun in Thebes, which, when it was excavated, was found to be defaced. Not a single image of him had survived the chisel attacks of his time. The Colbrin suggests a sound reason for Quinumun's disgrace. All right, that was a note she put in red, and we're going to keep going. The narrative continues. It has now become the story of the Sons of Fire, whose quest is to guard the great book of Egypt and find a safe home for themselves. The Sons of Fire are said to be a highly skilled group of metal workers of Tyre, people of the Twin Cities. Knowing they must go north, the Sons of Fire make their scrolls and metal plate texts watertight, load their provisions, and set sail. But the place where they try to settle first and build a city is full of wild men. It is on the edge of the known world, in the now-destroyed land of mists and kingdom of the trees, where the dampness causes sickness and many of them die. After some years, Knowing they will all die if they stay there any longer, the Sons of Fire set sail again northwards. They come across a group of Greek refugees from Troy and travel together. Eventually, they arrive on the south coast of Britain. At this time, post-Ice Age Britain is still an empty land inhabited by painted men, small tattooed Picts, and a few six-cubit, nine-foot giants. Whoa, so giants in Britain. Survivors of the cataclysm that destroyed most of the race of giants, the Trojans sail on to Dadana with their leader, Corineus, and after slaying the few remaining giants still living in Belharia, the same giants are builders of great temples, and they are six cubits tall. The migrants settle in what is now Cornwall. Several different languages are known to have been spoken in Britain at this time. The sons of fire move on and settle in a place named after a brave barbarian fighter called Cluth. They later move not far distant and settle by the waters of Glaith, where they set up a temple and establish their own distinctive way of life, adding laws to their existing books. The sons of fire have brought with them five great book boxes containing 132 scrolls and five ring-bound volumes known as the Greater Book of the Egyptians and the Lesser Book of the Egyptians. These books include the Book of the Trial of the Great God, the Sacred Register, the Book of Establishment, the Book of Magical Concoctions, the Book of Songs, the Book of Creation, the Book of Destruction, 
and the book of tribulation, the great book of the sons of fire, which contains among other texts, the book of secret lore and the book of decrees. What we are left with centuries later are the book of creation, the book of gleanings, the book of scrolls, the book of the sons of fire, the book of manuscripts, and the book of morals and precepts. Nothing is known about the book of the Trojans once listed with the other books. So that is the end of what is in the Egyptian part of the Cobran Bible. And we're going to continue on here with the story in the Celtic books. Celtic texts make up the second part of the Cobran. The scribes writing them are clearly impressed by the Egyptian books, which they have copied and preserved for they try to set out the ancient history of Britain in the same format as the Egyptian texts. The Celtic texts do not mention the Egyptian books or their whereabouts, but they do refer to certain treasures stated in the Egyptian books to have disappeared, which seem to correspond to items brought to Egypt by Osira. Quote, the heart of Britain is the moon chalice, which was brought here by the hands of the chief of the Cassini. He came shipborne to Rafinia, which is by the Mount of Lud, against Ardmoal, passing Innsbruck. He came to Aitin, where he hid the treasure in Trethbethu. It was not captured, as men say, nor could it decay. In the fullness of time, it came to Cargwen. There it was kept secure with the grail stone and the ever-virgin vessel which brought down the rays of the sun. Thus, it was that these treasures of Egypt came to Britain. This was the secret of Britain. Unquote. And then it goes on to say the Celtic books comprise of one bullet point here, the Book of Origins or Feral Book. Included in this book is an important retelling of the flood tale brought by early immigrants to Britain, known as the wildland cultivators who come from Caucasus, which is the Caucasus again. And then she puts another note here in red. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle begins its history of Britain by saying the first inhabitants were the Britons who came from Armenia and first people Britain southward. In ancient times, Armenia was a huge kingdom whose territory included half of what is now Turkey plus areas to the south and the east. Then she continues on. It also describes the indigenous peoples living in Britain when the first immigrants settled there. The flood tale in this book mentions not one, but two ships of flood survivors, a ship with a house on it, and the Brim Kofer. And in them red, she put Brim and Kofer, each having a specific, now obsolete meaning. Brim equal the flood, and Kofer equal the Ark of the Flood in the 1937 Oxford English Dictionary. And then continuing on with the second bullet point here, the Book of the Silver Bow. This has among its writings some prophetic text about the return of the Frightener, corresponding to prophecies about the Destroyer in the Egyptian books, but with some other details. The next bullet point is the Book of Lucius, followed by the Book of Wisdom, and then the next and last bullet point and final book of the Colbrin is the Britain book. Two chapters of this book contain an apocryphal gospel of the life of Jesus, 
stating that he was not divine and giving details such as that he and his disciples would sometimes go down to Tyre to work on Joseph of Arimathea's ships. There is a full description of how Joseph of Abramatha slash Idwin slash Iliad slash Iliad and in red she puts Joseph of Arimathea and his companions arrive in Britain. Joseph's subsequent dealings with the Druids and King Caradu slash Caractacus and the rocky progress of early Christianity in Britain over the first few hundred years, including the persecution of early Christians by the Romans. I've done my best to decode Joseph's route from place names provided in the Celtic books. She goes on to say, In the books of Britain, it is written, Iliad, in red, Joseph of Arimathea, came seaborne in a ship of Tarsus, in red, Tartissos, on the Spanish peninsula. From across the Sea of Wicta, in red, she puts, Sea of Vectus, setting up at Rafinia, and in red, Richborough, Kent, in the land of the Wains, in red, land of the Celtic chariots, from thence to the river Tarrant, in red, river Trent, which flows between the kingdom of Albany and the kingdom of Cory, in red, Cornwall, Albany being the land between the Eisen, in red, iron working area to the east, with a question mark, and the Icta, in red, Isca, or trading town of Exeter to the west. Passing Inverne, in red, Charmouth, and Incels, in red, Lou Island, south of the Cathabalon, question mark in red, and then past Dinsolin, in red, St. Michael's Mount, to take water at the town where ships traded standing at the foot of the red cliff between the two white ones, in red, Cligahead, Parinporth, in with a question mark around the extreme of the world to the northern Icta, in red, Isca, or trading town of Carilion on Usk, in Siluria. Here, they were unwelcome, but were permitted to take water and wood and to trade for meat and grain. Sailing thence towards the rising sun, they came to the place beyond Sabrin, in red, River Severn, called Summerland, in red, Somerset. The Britain book includes a detailed description of the lake village near what is now Glastonbury. Now, eastward, into the north, there was a lake, and between this and the Isle of Departure, there was a swampland, and there was a village of houses that stood out above the water, and the moon maidens and moon matrons who served the dead dwelt there, in red. In Models in Archaeology, Methuen, 1971, David L. Clark states that this lake village clearly contained areas of specialized activities and structures occupied only by women. The following text links the Celtic books to early British history. Joseph Eidwin was related to Avalek, whose kingdom bordered that of Arvagragus through Anna the Unfaithful. He converted Claudia Rufina, the daughter of Caradu, previously called Gladys, who married Pudens, a Roman, and had a daughter, Pudentia. In his 28th year, Caradu was betrayed to the Romans by Aresia, queen of Briantus. 
he married Genusa, daughter of Claudius, to bind the peace agreement. In red hair, she puts, in his 1968 book, The Drama of the Lost Disciples, George F. Jowett identifies the ruins beneath the present-day Church of St. Pudentiana in Rome with the Britannic Palace in which Caradu slash Caractacus lived while under house arrest with his daughter Gladys slash Claudia and Pudens, whose daughter Pudentia helped the early Christians. The church was named after her. I have visited the church and glimpsed the remains of the palace through a grill at the side of the church, though the collapsed remains are too dangerous to venture into. And then she continues on with normal text here. Gladys, sister of Caradu, married Aulus Plautius, a Roman commander. Caradu slash Caractacus held an estate in Siluria and was made war chief when Gerdurius, son of Cimbalin, was slain by a slingshot near the river Thames in the year 59 of our Lord. The British rose up under Wodica, the horse fighter, who died nearly three years later when Gulgaeus became war chief. All right, so we're moving on to the next part called the Calidae. The unnamed cleric who compiled the Calidae, the Gospel of John of Luna, says at the start that he is uniting in one narrative the diverse accounts brought to these shores by the Calidae in the days of battle glory, when the mantle of Herthu descended upon Inhoc Caradu, led by the wise Iliad, and in red she put Joseph of Arimathea. And then it continues on. He calls his book, the Book of John, the Enlightened of God, and the Book of the Nazarenes, and the Illuminated Ones. He sends greetings to his brothers in Doiva, the Kofarils at Karimba. He says that he and they have all been cast out. He states that they are opposed by cunning people who have the support of the dark strangers. Let us, who are homeborn, stand as one in all things, and not least in belief, for we are surrounded by dark-bearded men with strange ways. The scribe goes on to say that hundreds of wonderful books, the life work of diligent hands, have been used to heat the flesh pots, and there is a constant searching of all which does not accord with foreign beliefs. Since there are many versions, I have taken it upon myself to prepare this one for you from the writings saved in flight. Pitifully, few are the books salvaged from the great conflagration and brought out under our gowns. I have faithfully copied the accounts of that John whom we call Numa, who knew our earthly father, touching on events of his times, according to the books which have been written and left to us. And then in red, she puts, It has been suggested by a Colbrin reader that the great conflagration might have been the burning of the Library of Alexandria in the 3rd, 4th century AD. The cleric clearly combines Druidic and Christian beliefs. I am one who can overcome the distinctions between Jesus and Isurus, reconciling the crystal virgin with mystic motherhood. I can place the clear moon-filled chalice beside the golden blood-filled cup. I can combine the star-girt circles of eternity with the lowly cross and the defeated suffering son with the victorious battle-inspiring fighter. What distinguishes the Kaladi from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that it contains far more material, including many biographical details not found elsewhere. 
For instance, there is much more information about John the Baptist slash John of the Wilderness, which we are told was brought to these shores by Aristolus, author of a chapter in the Britain book. We are told that Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin only in the sense that she had once been a virgin pledged to God in the temple by her father, that the wise men from the east were men of Sastara, wise in the books of heaven and of Nimrod, who carried the cross of fire, that Jesus, described as Jesus the Nazarene, was brought up in Jinsareth and trained to make plows, and that at the time his father died, he was working as a craftsman among the Kenites, that he was a man of long silences, and many thought him strange, that he was not the only healer in this country. There were others, too, that he did not always heal a person, for in some it created a disturbance, while many were not cured because this would have done them more harm than good, even that he loved boats and swimming. In the Kaledi, the details surrounding his death and resurrection imply that he did not die on the cross. Above all, the Kaledi shows how Jesus' teachings were crafted on the Druidic and Celtic beliefs to create the Celtic Church of Britain, which preceded the Roman Church by several hundred years. All right, that is the end of that section of this article and the section that details what the Celtics wrote in the Cobran Bible. And there's one more section of this article. I'm going to read through it. It's pretty interesting stuff. And it's titled, Letter Found in an Old Copy of the Cobran. At the back of the 1994 New Zealand hardback edition of the Cobran, there is reproduced a note found inside an old copy of the Cobran, signed by J.M.C.A., it tells how the Colbrin was brought back to light in the place known to them as Futural Carn, beyond the pool of Pantlin at Carclethan, by way of Gwendor in Wales. In red, she puts, I have identified the village as Gwender, south of Bilth Wells, the pool as Pant E. Lynn, and the Carn as Seth Claude the only Karn out of 439 sites recorded in an archaeological field survey of that area for the Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historical Monuments of Wales, which was described as disturbed. Then she goes on to say, the writer remembers his grandfather saying that it was originally written in the old alphabet of 36 letters and that the books were stored in a tinker's budget box, the lid of which was not hinged but held with flanges and lifted off after being heated, were a fragment written in the old alphabet to come to light. Perhaps it would tell us that Isla Olo Morganwig wasn't such a forgerer after all. All right, that's the end of that article written by Yvonne Whiteman, which you can find on GrahamHancock.com. I'm going to post that in the show notes for all of you. I hope that you enjoyed that. The Coburn Bible. It's really awesome and interesting. I definitely recommend checking it out if you can find it out there. Just be careful because there is like a complete works that's out there that was put together in the 90s. And the people putting it together took liberties to fill in the gaps. It's not the most accurate presentation of the Colbrin, but it's really hard to find anything on it. So I thought this article was an awesome description by somebody who's actually doing the research. I love how she cross-referenced other ancient texts. And really kind of put it all together. Had my mind working while I was reading it and cross-referencing things that I talk about. Like the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, 
Hermes Trismegistus, all that good stuff. So I really appreciate you coming along with me on that journey. I thought this was really interesting. I hope you did too. Let me know what you think for sure. And if you want me to read the whole Colburn Bible in installments or whatever, reach out. Let me know. I will do that. I'll put it out here. It's really long, but it's interesting. If there's a demand for it, let me know what's up, what your thoughts are. And if you want to hear more of me diving into the Colburn Bible and other topics like this and other ancient history, alternate ancient history, let me know what you think. Email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. You can always follow me on Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. DM me, reach out. Let me know what you think about these episodes. I love this kind of stuff. I hope you do too. There's so much out there to explore, to dive into, to peel back the layers of this reality. So please take a second to subscribe, follow wherever you listen to this podcast. Share this with your friends, your family, random people everywhere you go. Tell them about the Colburn Bible. Blow their minds. Skip the small talk. Jump right into the Emerald Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean or the Colburn Bible, the Brave New World Order podcast. Just put it all out there right out the gate. Thank you all again for joining me. If you really like what I'm doing here, you want to support the show, there are a couple of links in the show notes for you. You can click those. You can help out, help the show grow. There ain't no ads in the Brave New World Order, so any little bit helps. And I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I will catch up with you soon. I got many more things to talk about, many more ideas, check in on some current events and current psyops. So I will see you all soon. In the meantime, stay positive, think for yourselves, and question everything. Much love. Peace out.